The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, the military historian and theorist whose new book is Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. Sir Lawrence, welcome. This is a book that ranges over a huge amount of ground, an enormous number of different conflicts and different situations and types of command. Can you try and give me a sense to start with, what was the sort of question, if there was a question, that you were trying to answer in writing this book? I think the question I was trying to address was the assumption that there's a clear demarcation between the politicians who set the objectives of a war and the military who fight them. And the military put a lot of effort into demanding clear objectives and then the politicians to stay well clear while they sort it out. And it doesn't work like that. So part of my approach was to uh, demonstrate that that doesn't work, but then find as many cases to show the different ways in which the military influenced political decisions and, and, the, and the politicians influenced military decisions, or, or the political context influences the military decisions. So that was sort of the underlying starting point. Of course, the second aspect that I was very keen on was to show there's quite a rich military history after 1945. There's many books, excellent books, still coming out on the First and Second World Wars. And obviously, these are enormous climactic conflicts with masses of material still to explore. But there's an awful lot that's happened after 1945 as well, and that gets uh, less attention. And it tends to be looked at as individual conflicts rather than across the board. So I wanted to see if there were some themes that could come up by looking at, at all those different conflicts. Just to give a, a little sort of background, I'm wondering when this idea, which you're, you're working quite hard on sort of debunking or complicating or, or making sort of richer and more subtle, that there was a sort of civilians setting political objectives and military people commanding. I mean, presumably... In medieval times and early modern times, to an extent, the idea that there was a divide between the civilian and military was, you know, the king was was both things. Is yeah. that when did that emerge? So it's basically during the nineteenth century. I mean, the, the sovereign led the troops into battle and decided why they were there. And you can see with Napoleon, he was in charge of setting the, the objectives and, and fighting the battles. I think as monarchs get less involved as the kings get less involved, then they have to delegate responsibility to the political and military leadership. So a lot of these tensions that, are, that I discuss in the book, these are tensions I've discussed in, in previous work as well, you can see strongly emerging over the Franco-Prussian War, where you have Bismarck on one side and von Moltke on the other, two very strong and capable people who clash with each other about the conduct of the war. And I think thereafter, it comes to be accepted that, uh, in the West anyway, that by and large, it's best if the military are kept subordinate. This isn't, this isn't 
just obviously because of how best to fight a war, but also to prevent military takeovers and coups. So I think that that is part and parcel of of twentieth century thinking, uh, even in the Soviet Union. Obviously, Hitler, and there are other examples in my books, like Saddam Hussein, where you get dictators who uh, fancy themselves as military commanders and put on the uniform and start giving orders. So it's not always the case that there is this uh, institutional separation between the two. Does it seldom go well when the political leader decides he, usually he is going to be the general as well? Rarely goes well. It's it's normally a bad idea. I mean, and part of it, and this is, is certainly a theme of the book, is the problem with autocracies. I mean, it's not that democracies always make wonderful decisions. We know they don't. But autocracies tend to have leaders who believe that they can make bold decisions because there's nothing to stop them, that they can have the benefits of surprise. And there's nobody criticising them. There's nobody saying, are you sure? Have you thought about this? What about this as an alternative? Now, what often happens is, is dictators may start listening to that, but eventually they become more confident as say Hitler did, in their own voice and believe that they can they can do what they need. The hubris takes over. So it rarely goes well, especially if actually they don't have a lot of military experience to fall back on. Is there a converse problem in, if you like, the less autocratic situations where the chain of command becomes too long or that oversight is too great, that that kind of speed, I mean, as you say, you know, an autocrat can say, well, I can do this immediately and the army will do exactly what I say and bam. You know, you've got some examples in this book, haven't you, where it's much harder for troops in the field to move if they feel that they're not being given enough independence. Yeah, I think it's a constant issue. I mean, the chain of command tends to reflect the military hierarchy and the more complex, the more layers there's likely to be of command. It's a quite simple operation, so it may not be so great. But the issue is delegation. The issue is whether you give those right at the front the latitude to make decisions, take initiatives, rather than constantly have to pass up information to the top and then wait for new orders to come down. And if the order's the same, they have to fight the same way, even if they know it's disastrous. And actually, again, it's a, it tends, can be a feature of more autocratic systems where if there's no confidence the dissent or initiative will be tolerated, that you'll get blamed for any mistakes, then all the incentives are to push things back up the chain of command and, and wait for orders. And that tends to produce quite a lot of inefficiencies in military practice. But even with you know quite, quite many layers of command, you can still have a lot of latitude given to junior officers. Yeah. This question, I mean, you, you say in your introduction, you know, command, there is a sort of understanding that particularly in a military hierarchy, you know, you say jump and the person below you says roughly how high. How much, because here and there in the book, you talk about instances where commands are either subverted or deliberately misunderstood or outright disobeyed. I'm wondering how much latitude there is for that. I mean, presumably, obviously, no army can work if you don't expect commands to be obeyed. But, you know, sometimes we find field commanders in particular deciding that they are answerable to a higher idea of the nation or a higher I- ideal than, than a political, you know, here today, gone tomorrow politician. That happens quite often. I mean, the, the number of 
instances, starting with MacArthur in uh, in Korea, who was eventually sacked by President Truman in, in, in 1951 for taking things to what Truman and, and actually other generals thought was a, a dangerous extent and potentially, well, actually provoking a war involving China. Ariel Sharon in Israel, who was famously insubordinate, didn't believe at all in anything he was being told by his superiors, was a brilliant field commander, and therefore his superiors did give him some latitude. The problem with Sharon came when he was Minister of Defence with the Lebanon in 1982, when there was nobody to hold him back or restrain him. Or you have the case of the French army in Algeria, which through some pretty dubious methods managed to suppress a rebellion only for de Gaulle, who they'd helped to put in power, uh, realising that nonetheless a deal still had to be done because the position over time would be untenable and, and they then tried to mount a coup. These are extreme cases, but it reflects a tension between commanders who can see what's going on, they, they've got a high stake in what goes on in terms of their personal careers as well as uh, the nation's salvation. I can get very frustrated with what they see foolishness coming down from above. It's a regular tension, and often it becomes because they don't, simply don't understand the various issues that those right at the top are having to balance. So even if they do obey orders, they do so grumbling, not understanding, for example, just take, take an example of the Falklands, which by and large went pretty well in command terms. When you've got Julian Thompson on San Carlos worrying about his logistics and how he can move anywhere and being nagged by London to get a move on, he doesn't fully appreciate this is because London is worried that they're going to come under almost irresistible pressure to agree a ceasefire and want to get as much done as possible. Eventually that's explained to him, it helps. So that's why you know I think the politics is always important. If you know what your politicians are trying to achieve or your senior military leaders are trying to achieve, it becomes easier as a more junior officer to make the right decisions. I mean, you mentioned Algeria and these kind of counterinsurgencies are obviously particularly political. Yeah. And, you know, we know that the army were furious that de Gaulle, as they saw it, sold them out. You know, they yeah. were doing a lot of things and a lot of very dirty things in support of this counterinsurgency war, keeping Algeria French. Do you see a parallel between that and the recent issue in Afghanistan, where again, when the Americans pulled out, you know, a lot of, I think, American servicemen felt very strongly, you know, that we've, we and our comrades fought and died to try and stabilise this country, and now you're handing it back to the Taliban. Well, you can certainly hear the same voices in, in Algeria, the French feeling they, they were betraying the many members of the local community, Muslims, who had worked with them and for whom they correctly feared. I mean, they didn't have a great time when the, when the new government took over. And the same issue, as we well know, appeared in Afghanistan in 21. I mean, they're different issues because Algeria was about holding on to a territory that was believed to be French, whereas with Afghanistan, it was trying to establish a government that wasn't Taliban. And so you're caught by different political problems from the start. It would have been easier in Afghanistan if from early on the Taliban had been in the accepted as a big player in Afghan politics. Over time it was 
almost inevitable that Algeria would cease to be French. So the, the, the underlying political problems are different and, and the conclusions of the, of the wars are different. But that, that particular issue where you've tried to work with local people who you then let down is very present and, and, and you can see it elsewhere, obviously in Vietnam too. Yes, I think of working with local people. You, I mean, another of the fascinating case studies in the book is, well, it's the beginning of America and Afghanistan. Yeah. This idea, you know, I mean, Rumsfeld, very sort of interesting character here. I'm not sure you admire him as much as he admires himself. But that idea of fighting a sort of, not quite a proxy war, but, you know, assisting the Northern Alliance, that... that at least as, as you frame it, seems to have been a real innovation in the history of America's expeditionary wars. Well, not wholly. I mean, I think it, it, it's often there. Proxy war is a difficult term because it suggests that the locals are somehow agents of the outside power. Sorry, proxy might not be the right word there. No, it's, yeah. it's used. I mean, this is the word that gets used all the time. And I think it, it's inherently a misleading term because everybody's got their own agenda. Everybody's trying to use the situation to make it work best for them. So the case of Afghanistan in, in 2001, the Northern Alliance were already battling the Taliban. They didn't have a lot of the country, but they had 10% or so. They were very happy to work with the Americans to overthrow the Taliban. And the Americans didn't think they could get to bin Laden until they had overthrown the Taliban. Then you had the situation where the Taliban fled Bin Laden moved to Torabora, the mountainous outpost, not far from the border with Pakistan. And the Northern Alliance weren't interested in following it up. So they put together something that was called the Eastern Alliance, but was, was absolutely cobbled together, collection of local warlords who didn't get on with each other. And in the end, they were not quite sure why they were taking all the risks of putting their own people at risk to try to storm this sort of mountain redoubt when the Americans were sort of watching from behind. And you can see their point. So that encourages the attention, which in the end ruined the whole operation and Bin Laden escaped. So I should say, parenthetically, an amazing kind of cameo appearance there from Mike Mattis, who goes on to become much more famous. Yes, Jim Mattis appears... So Jim Mattis. Jim, Jim, Mattis, Mattis, Jim yeah. Mattis appears in charge of Marines, and he has a plan. And, and again, this is one thing that, that, that comes throughout, is, is there a, a rivalries not only between individuals, but to, between branches of the military. So the army don't particularly like giving the Marines the glory. And Mattis was under an army chain of command, who, who as far as he was concerned, just wasn't using him as, as he could have been used, because he had ground forces available that could have been used potentially, I mean, it's unclear whether it would have worked, potentially to cut off bin Laden's escape route to Pakistan. Now, you you don't simply use actual real-world military examples, but I mean, you sometimes use fiction to talk about this. I mean, you talk about Latagi's novels. And also in particular, there's this one book which seems to have some sort of cult following in the American military, Once an Eagle. Yeah which offers two kind of archetypes of military officers. Now, I wonder if you could explain the distinction between a Sam Damon and a Courtney Massengale. Yes. And how much you think it reflects a real-world thing. I think, well, I think it's less important now, but it, but it was a cult book. 
it's a very long book and, and, and has some quite steamy sections. But <laughs> basically, it, it tells the long story, basically ending in Vietnam, although for some reason, having used real people and places for most of the book, he doesn't describe Vietnam as Vietnam. Uh, between Damon, who is what he called a true soldier, committed to his men, dedicated in a sense to, to core military values, and also very capable, and the worst sort of political officer, Massengale, who'd been to West Point, uh, was always looking after his career, used Damon's a victory that, that Damon achieved despite a, a terrible plan from Massengale in the Pacific War, and so on. So it's, it's an interesting contrast, and you're meant, obviously, to admire Damon, the Mustang, the sort of feral, free spirit, who's actually, in his own way, quite disciplined, but who sticks with his men, does the soldiering, and the highly political Massengale. And it, it was important because it influenced the thinking of at least one chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Hugh Shelton, in his attitude to, to some of his subordinates, and in picking them, is he a Damon or is he a Massengale? And the point, I think, is that actually the, some of the skills Massengale had you need is, is, is in the end. I mean, Massengale is, is basically a MacArthur-type figure, very egotistical, very right-wing, and so he, he's painted in very un, unflattering terms, and you don't have to admire either of those traits. But you do need people who can work the system, who understand how the system operates. And I think it's a feature of command, as indeed leadership in any organisation, that you not only need to be able to have a plan for dealing with the enemy, you need one for dealing with your own organisation, how to bring people along, how to get the best out of them. And they require political skills. And so it's not surprising sometimes that these sort of straight-talking straight warriors don't get the advancement they, they deserve because they don't play the game. But the game itself is not unimportant because the game requires the right people to be in the right positions. Yes, in Kosovo, which is another of your case studies, you know, you have Wesley Clark as, you know, he, he's pretty firmly identified as a Massengale. Yeah, does, that make, does that make Mike Jackson Sam Damon in this, this well, particular Well, Mike Jackson could be quite political in his own, in his own <laughs> way. He ended up as Chief of the General Staff. So Clark was, the, was, as you say, very much one that Shelton thought of Massengale. He'd been to West Point, he won all the prizes. He saw himself as a politician. At one point, he tried to get the, the nominee for the Democrat Party to fight the presidential election after being in office. Actually, I mean, he was very smart. He is very smart, Clark, and he understood the politics of the situation well, but he actually wasn't that good in dealing with his subordinates, and that's where a lot of the tensions came, including, including the famous incident with Jackson, which was actually over how you deal with a Russian push to try to insert themselves in Pristina Airport in Kosovo as part of the peacekeeping force after the actual main Kosovo war had ended. And, and Clark was absolutely right about what the Russians were trying to do. Jackson was right about the fact that he could probably deal with it perfectly well on the ground. Actually, Clark had taken the most important measure by making sure that Allies denied Russians the airspace to, to move more troops into the airport. So it's a, it's a clash of personalities. But I, I think it's actually quite a good demonstration of how you can have somebody who understands sort of big picture, high politics very well, as Clark did, and could operate the alliance very well. 
but somehow the internal politics, uh, he kept on getting wrong or into difficulties. That fight over Pristina, I mean, unless I'm misreading it, one of, I mean, it was obviously a very famous incident that, you know, I'm not going to start World War Three for you. It seems to be an almost a kind of sideshow, though, as you, you frame it, because as you say, even by the time there was this question, of, are we going to confront the Russians on the ground? Are we going to be holding guns? Or are we going to be speaking Russian and making nice? They hadn't got the airspot because the, the neighbouring countries had denied them overflight. So... Yeah, it was a sideshow, and it was never going to start World War Three. I mean, it, it might have led to some awkwardness, but it wasn't. I mean, the Russians were in no fit state to fight World War Three, especially over that issue. I think it's actually quite interesting as a demonstration of the impact of fatigue. I mean, I think this conflict had been going on for a while. It had lasted longer than everybody thought it should. Time differences were really important because Kosovo obviously in Europe, a lot of the discussions were with people in Washington. There was Strobe Tolbert, the, the president's envoy in Moscow. So the combination of complex time differences, the fact that everybody could talk to each other, so unlike previous conflicts where you just had to let people get on with it because there was no way of communicating with them, this is the start of that period when everybody can communicate all, all the time. So all of these factors make people actually quite cross and bad-tempered and often speaking across purposes because nobody's quite keeping up with what's going on. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned MacArthur and he seems to be a kind of locus classicus of the, you know, overmighty general and obviously a kind of fabulous character in itself. But he also, as I understand it, kind of essentially said to Truman, I should have oversight or command of you know, tactical nuclear weapons in theatre, which was, Truman recognised, a complete no-no because political. And I'm wondering, can you expand a bit on this question of how the existence of nuclear weapons, uh, tactical or strategic, have have sort of changed the calculus in the way that wars are fought now and in where command results? Yeah, partly the, the fear with MacArthur, the, the main one, was that he just wanted to take the war. He wanted to turn the Korean War into a China war essentially. And nuclear weapons are obviously behind that too, because although at this time Russia didn't have very much and China didn't have much either, the very possibility of using nuclear weapons is alarming. When it appeared that Truman was thinking about it, Clement Attlee charged over the Atlantic to urge him to be very careful about how he spoke of these things. Thereafter, it's a major restriction on on the way wars are conducted. And we can see it at this moment, obviously, working its way through the discussions on, on, on Ukraine. Political leaders of major powers get nervous if they think a war is going to escalate to that level. And the rather classic case, which I do consider in the book, the Cuban Missile Crisis in '62, uh, Kennedy is pretty desperate that nobody is in a position, in a sense, to start a war with Russia almost by inadvertence or just following orders without thinking through the implication. Oddly, what, what's also going on at this time is the, is the Russian submariners who force Russian submarines about the only thing that, <laughs> that are getting through and are being chased by American warships. And they have nuclear torpedoes on board, which the Americans don't know. So um, uh, beyond close command from Moscow, 
So that is why people think that was possibly one of the more dangerous aspects of the whole crisis, because you're dependent upon the decisions of some fraught Russian naval captains who decided not to use their torpedoes. I don't think they were as close to doing so as some people who picked up on this have suggested, but the fact is they could have done. So I think this question of how you keep the nuclear weapons under control, while at the same time trying to get some benefit from their existence by warning the other side about how things could get out of control, and therefore they need to be very careful about how they go, is sort of a a theme of any conflict in which uh, major powers get involved, and obviously uh, at the moment. Would the Cuban Missile Crisis have been more dangerous, do you think, had Kennedy known that those submarines had nuclear missiles aboard them? It's an interesting question. I, I think Kennedy always had in his head a very dramatic process of escalation. So you can see, even in his discussion of how ships might be boarded, which actually would not have been as big a deal as he thought it might, he had this sort of notion of gunfights breaking out and and one thing leading to another. So he had a very strong concept of the dangers of escalation in his head, uh, more so than, say, an Eisenhower would have done, who was more phlegmatic about the way that military operations could develop. So, yes, he would have been even more concerned than he was about the methods by which US warships would encourage Soviet submarines to surface. The fact is that it was agreed that they would use dummy depth charges, but frankly, if there's great bangs going around you, on around you and, and you're in a submarine, you're not sure in the first instance whether this is the real thing or a dummy. So I think on that sort of thing, he would have been even more cautious. Yeah. You mentioned Ukraine, which, of course, is is something that your your book was going to press sort of as, as the war was getting yeah. underway, and you managed to get, get some of a chapter in there. I want to start with, can I ask you a bit about where you, you know, how much you could take the long view on this and how much the conflict we're seeing now like the First and Second Chechen Wars and the 2014 invasion, how much did they set it up and frame it and how different is it to those conflicts? Well, they did frame it. So the chapter on Ukraine about 2014 and, and about largely about the separatist rebels who were led by Russians. The Ukrainians get very sensitive if you call them separatists. They're Russian-sponsored, and, and the key figure in the story, Igor Gherkin, is very Russian, a Russian hypernationalist. But what was interesting to me, if you looked at Putin's previous wars, including what had happened in 2014, was that he was certainly a risk-taker, but his risk seemed pretty calculated. And so the, there's a, an interesting question as to why, in 2022... He, he, he maybe still calculated, but he calculated very badly indeed, and obviously on a far larger scale than anything that had happened with the annexation of Crimea and so on. And I think here, again, the problem with, with autocracies, you're looking at the personal development of an individual and how he's getting more paranoid, possibly more hubristic, because his military gambles up to this point have largely come off. And who knows, maybe even covid which left him in isolation, reading too many history books about how Ukraine shouldn't really exist as a country and wasn't a proper state, and about which he wrote a, an extremely tendentious and very long essay. And 
nobody seems to have challenged this view. Nobody seems to have warned him just how badly this could come off and he didn't consult the people who might have provided that warning. It's almost a classic example of how a strong power, apparently strong power, can make so many mistakes that now, seven months on, we see them as the weaker party, almost, except for nuclear weapons, in the, in this whole situation. And I think, having written this book, and not just the, the, the stuff on Chechnya and Kosovo and Crimea and so on, I think it does, it does help in, in providing a broader context as to how decisions of this sort can get made and how they can go so badly wrong. I mean, there are some military decisions that go right in this book, but there's an awful lot that, that don't go right at all. And there's often very similar reasons, particularly overestimation of yourself and underestimation of the opponent. And just a, a forgetfulness about how quite small things can make military operations go wrong. Now, as, as well as overconfidence and, and the reluctance to take advice, I'm wondering how much a point you make in the book factors into the military difficulties of autocracies, which is that, and as I understand it, Putin's a prime example, dictators like to keep the army down to some extent because they know that the most likely thing that's going to do for them is a military coup. And so one way or another, they, they sort of want to marginalise the army in certain respects. Yeah, actually, that that's not so much the issue with Russia because there's such a strong tradition from the Soviet Union as well of military subordination to the civilian echelon. The problem, except for the fact that the the two senior figures, Minister of Defence Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, are part of the elite and have been there for so long, they've sort of indistinguishable from the, from the the rest of Putin's cronies. But the military actually, is, is in, in many ways, is quite professional in its command structure. But you do see it in, in many other cases, for example, with President Tu in, in South Vietnam, or Saddam Hussein, certainly, where they're choosing people not for their professional competence, but for their loyalty. They try to coup-proof their militaries. And as a consequence, they often end up with pretty incompetent militaries. And you get... I mean, the sort of almost the, the reductio absurdum of this is Mobutu in the Congo, who, who is sort of putting relatives and mem- members of his tribe into military positions. And may see this as business opportunities rather than professional responsibility. So in many armies, it's a, it's a common problem. I mean, it raises sort of an interesting question with China, which obviously hasn't actually fought a war since 79. So we don't... Yes, I was going to say China is... Well, for that reason, one of the sort of slight absences in your book, you address it a little bit in the afterword. It's true. I brought it in at the end because that's the one that people worry about most, especially in Washington. And what's interesting there is that you have Z seeing the military as a power block, as, as a potential source of opposition, cutting the army down to size, emphasising the importance of sort of diligent study of the collected works of presidency, while at the same time worrying about the professional competence of an army that hasn't fought a war for a long time. It's subject to what Chinese commentators have called a peace disease, that they don't really understand what's involved. And so it's, it's actually, looking forward, it's a very good example of this tension 
between the wider political role of the armed forces and the need to be prepared to actually fight a war. Now, let's return to Ukraine briefly. Do you see it as a very stark, as a lot of commentators have, just basically a very stark difference between two two models of command? Or is there more to, to what's going on than that, do you think? Well, there's obviously a lot going on, and there's many factors in play. But it is clear that the Russian army is very hierarchical. Junior officers do what they've been told to do until they're told different, even if it's catastrophic each time. Whereas partly, I think, because of circumstances, there wasn't much choice but to have quite a distributed military force and quite dispersed. But also, I think, because of the influence of American, British and other Western training, they've learnt to uh, delegate more and to give more initiative to local officers. You have to say there's always limits to how far you can do that because there are certain resources that can only be held by the centre and you need to coordinate operations. So it's not, it's not straightforward that it's always better to delegate. But in this case, it, it certainly helped. It certainly helped to take initiatives. And the problem for the Russians, which is why it's not just simply a command structure, it was the problem of communications, that uh, they didn't have secure communications in Ukraine, which is one reason why the Ukrainians got good intelligence, but also why Russian generals kept on going forward to the front, where they a number of times also got picked off because they only they could give the orders to get things moving. Yeah. As a scholar of all this, were you surprised by the... <laughs> speed with which the Ukrainians were able to, to get momentum? And were you someone who was thinking initially the Russians are you know, going to roll over Ukraine? I never thought that. That was one reason why I didn't think it was as likely as other people did that the Russians would try to do what they did because it struck me that it's just too big a country. Uh, in fact, on the 25th of February, I wrote that the Russians can't win this war. So I never thought they would roll them over. I thought it might turn into more of an insurgency. So I was surprised by just how poorly the Russians, in a sense, followed their own doctrines. And you could, you know, partly because of clever Ukrainian moves, but also in part because they just hadn't foreseen. They were, and they were arrogant and they tried to move on too many axes at once. They made some elementary errors because they thought the Ukrainians were a pushover. But I wasn't surprised that they weren't. I've been at a conference in Ukraine in 2019 and I had a pretty good idea how serious they were about defending their own country. So it's a combination of things that have got Russia into this mess. And in the end, it's Putin's responsibility, not only for launching the war in the first place, but even when he had a chance to get out of it, he hasn't taken it. He hasn't looked for a serious negotiated outcome that doesn't give, give him everything that he, that, that he wanted. And he's kept on pressing his troops to put more and more into some pretty futile operations. They've, their advances since uh, April have been very small for enormous losses. Whereas, as we've seen, the Ukrainians have been able to, in recent weeks, move quite quickly. So it's almost a catalogue of errors. There's not many that you might have made that they've avoided making. Do you read those doublings down and the mobilisation and the 
nuclear saber rattling as if you to return to the main theme of your book as if you like serious sort of battlefield tactical decisions or are they politics are they domestic politics for putin to try and shore himself up against the ultras on the right well as always the book domestic and international the mobilization which putin made clear was the recommendation of the ministry of defense rather than his own idea is meant to meet the, the extraordinary losses that they've suffered that they're just short of people uh, there are plenty of people, but whether they can equip them and train them seems another matter, and all probability they can't. The nuclear stuff has been there from the start. I mean, it, I think inevitably we get very alarmed by it, but in practice, uh, it's about deterrence. I mean, I think it's largely about reminding NATO not to get directly involved, and it's worked in that sense. NATO hasn't got directly involved but it sort of adds to the menace and sense of danger around the whole enterprise. Yeah. You address in your introduction this question of how command works when it's nuclear. You know, how certain can the person in the, the White House or the Kremlin be that the order to launch nuclear terms is carried out? Is there a sort of sense, is your understanding in the Western defence establishment that if Mr. Putin presses his figurative red button, it's connected to something that will work in the sense that there's confidence that whoever the commanders on the ground are will actually do what presumably a pretty suicidal move for Mother Russia. Well, it's always been an issue. So, I mean, one of the scariest scenarios always is the idea of getting into a nuclear war because your early warning systems have given you the wrong message. Or that, if you remember... Movies like The War Game and so on, or Dr. Strangelove, are both about attempts to avoid the possibility that somebody won't do as they're ordered because of the horror of it all. And therefore, you have to put a degree of automaticity in, into the system. And then there's the question, which I think is very relevant now, with a whole load of systems, not so much possibly the intercontinental ones, but maybe true of them too, but certainly some of the shorter range, is who knows whether they'd work or not because they haven't been tested for a long time. And we've seen a lot of Russian kit hasn't worked very well when it's taken out of storage. And that would be an odd sort of thing to happen if you sort of take this dramatic step and it turns out to be a dud. So I wouldn't want anybody to be confident uh, about how a nuclear war might turn out on that basis, but it's a general point about the problem of assuming that all military systems will always work advertised as they should. And uh, there are many examples in this book of how it doesn't happen like that, and which is why I hope one of the themes of the book is that normally starting a war is a bad idea. <laughs> Can I ask, Justin, before you go, what briefly is your your read on the Ukraine situation now, where do you think it's going? I think the Russians are losing, and I can't quite see how they can... They, I don't think they can win now. Um, their best hope is some sort of compromise deal. And they seem to be hoping that if they can use the extra troops to stabilise the situation over the winter, that this sort of wretched time that Europeans are going to have and so on will create a political problem that will put pressure on the Ukrainians to make concessions. I don't think the Ukrainians will make concessions. I don't think the West will abandon them. If the Russians did stabilise 
the situation, then it's possible there would be pressure for a political deal. But I'm not convinced they can stabilise the situation. So Lawrence Friedman, thank you very much for your time. Command is out now. <laughs>